This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our episode in a moment, but first, Paula and I appreciate all of the continued support out there. We have over a million downloads, and we want to keep growing. If you could leave a positive rating on our podcast, we would greatly appreciate it. Also, tell a friend or family member about our show. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new mystery. your co-host Steve Yoder. And with us as always is our award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi everybody. Sydney, Ohio is in the west central part of the state, Shelby County, a half hour's drive north of Dayton and a hundred miles south of Toledo. More than 20,000 people call it home at last count. It was named for the English poet Philip Sydney. And in a cute twist, many of the city's elementary schools are named after famous writers, including Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and John Greenleaf Whittier. There are some cool historic buildings and a lot of history in this former canal town, where the Miami and Erie Canal ushered in settlers and the building boom began. On the south end of town, a feature that defines Sydney's skyline like nothing else is the Big Four Railroad Bridge. It's really rather beautiful, with its stately columns and five arches rising far above the Great Miami River and casting its shadow on the wide valley below. It's been a landmark since 1924. But it's a bridge that was paid for in blood. Its construction took four lives, for sure, and maybe a fifth, a mysterious migrant worker whose existence is in dispute, but enough of a possibility that a local historical marker makes note of it. Now, the need for the bridge was undeniable. Sydney, like a lot of canal towns, became prime real estate for railroads as the canal era declined. From 1853 to 1913, a railroad ran right through downtown. It was a dangerous recipe for pedestrians, horse-drawn carriages, and early cars. It was the Big Four Line, a name that reflected the four cities connected by the railroad— Cleveland, Cincinnati, Chicago, and St. Louis. Several people died or were seriously injured in train accidents— 
A couple that were particularly prominent involved a local businessman and his sister. Robert Given was the owner of Given and Sons Tannery. He and his sister Isabella were both killed by big four trains within two years of each other. And soon after that, Charles Benjamin, founder of Benjamin D. Handel Company, was struck and seriously injured. So, after the Great Flood of 1913 pretty much destroyed the downtown tracks, it wasn't much of a leap for local leaders to decide to move the tracks away from the city center to the south of town. That required a bridge, and not just any bridge. The Great Miami River, the courses through Sydney, creates a natural valley. To span the length of it, you're talking about 14 miles of embankment. A plan was hatched. The bridge would take two years and $5 million to construct. Walsh Construction Company of Davenport, Iowa, with a national reputation for rail bridge building, was chosen for the task and they hired hundreds of itinerant workers for the project in Sydney. Even though the early 20th century offered huge advancements in construction techniques over the 1800s, big construction projects still came with inherent risks and often exacted a human toll. Consider that almost 100 people died building the Hoover Dam, and that was in the 1930s. A primary source of trouble at the Big Four Bridge was going to be those temporary trestles that had to be built, long wooden stretches that extended to the center of where the bridge would be in order for gondola cars to carry the thousands of tons of earth that would form the east and west embankments. Building of the bridge commenced late in 1922. By June of 1923, the first death occurred. Henry Snyder was 40 years old, someone's husband from Lima, Ohio. He was working on the bridge that summer day when gondola cars overloaded with dirt crashed through the trestle on the east side of the bridge, falling almost 100 feet below. Snyder fell with a load and was crushed to death, almost beyond recognition. A co-worker Patrick Fitzgerald broke his arm and was pinioned under one of the wrecked gondolas, but managed to crawl out and save himself. The damaged trestle was rebuilt and construction continued. The second tragedy came half a year later. It was January 29, 1924. Much of the construction crew had come in from out of town, but this one was a native son. Thomas Schmidt, born to William and Emma Schmidt in Turtle Creek Township, was 33 years old when he slipped and fell to his death from the top of a bridge abutment to the street almost 10 stories below. His death orphaned his boys, William and Carl. He was a widower himself, raising his son with the help of his parents since his wife had died five years earlier. There was another near tragedy soon after that. A couple traveling in their car from their home in Troy on their way to visit a son in Napoleon. W.H. Brandon and his wife approached the construction site on County Road 25A from the south. 
they failed to see a man trying to warn them off and plowed through a rope that was stretched across the road. The rope sliced through the top of the auto like a hot knife through butter and caught Brandon under the chin. It was a miracle that he survived the serious injury. The next victims of the bridge wouldn't be so lucky. On May 12, 1924, about 9 o'clock on a Monday evening, the big wooden trestle at the west end of the bridge this time went down under the heavy load of 10 train cars dumping dirt into the fill. In a very similar accident to the one that had happened on the east side, the cars plunged 60 feet, tearing down 125 feet of the temporary trestle and carrying two men with it. The crash from the fall was heard throughout the city. Hundreds of people rushed to the site, but there was little they could do. Verdit Williams, a 20-year-old laborer from Joplin, Missouri, had his skull crushed and his neck broken. He died instantly. George Bennett, a 22-year-old from Rocky Mount, Virginia, was crushed about the legs and stomach and had a hole in the back of his head. He was pulled from the wreckage, still breathing, but only lingered a half hour before dying at the city hospital. Both men had been working at the site for about a month, sent to Sydney through an employment bureau. Not all of the trouble at the bridge was accidental. In one case, it was absolutely intentional. On June the 23rd, a month after those two men fell to their deaths, someone attempted to blow up the bridge. It was just a few minutes before midnight when the city was rocked by an explosion. It woke everyone up, even broke windows and homes throughout the south part of town. Houses emptied and hundreds of people mulled about the street trying to figure out what happened. Police checked local banks, thinking maybe someone had tried to dynamite a safe. Curious types hopped in their cars and drove around looking for the source. Nothing. It wasn't until the sun rose Tuesday morning that Frank Eves, a foreman at the bridge construction site, discovered 20 feet of fuse on the bridge. He investigated further to discover some still unexploded dynamite, tucked between the uprights in the middle of the second span. For all the chaos it caused on the south end of the town, it didn't appear to damage anything on the bridge. Powder burns were all that marked the spot of the dynamite that had successfully gone off. Witnesses said they saw two men loitering near the bridge Monday night, but those perpetrators were never discovered, and the motive remained unclear. Three men had been discharged by the company in previous days, so maybe that was connected, but nobody ever knew. The real chilling mystery in this story, however, was the discovery that there might have been a fifth death, a man who may still be buried in the concrete of one of the bridge's columns. All the other incidents were widely reported in newspapers, This one, if it happened, was not. It came from the memory of a boy who insists he saw the whole thing in the fall of 1924. 
Myron Chambers was five years old and living with his parents on South Ohio Avenue when the construction was going on. He was fascinated by the work. He vividly recalled all those disasters, the trestle collapses, the death of Schmidt. But he insisted he saw something else happen when the concrete arch nearest the west bank of the Great Miami River was poured. Chambers said he was watching the dump cars carrying concrete, backing into place and unloading, when he saw a man he described as Mexican walking a two-by-ten plank across the opening of the arch. He described the scene in detail, the worker falling forward into the concrete, down, down to the bottom of the column, as the board he was carrying flipped up into the air. He said others made an effort to save him, but after about 20 minutes, it was clear they would never be able to reach him. When they realized it was hopeless, maybe suspecting the fall had killed him anyway, they went back to pouring concrete. Mr. Chambers said, I don't think they placed much value on the lives of those immigrant workers. It may have been the memory of a child, but it persisted. Today, a marker at the site recalls the possibility of an unidentified worker interred in the concrete. The area where the body is believed to be was painted green, and the Shelby County Historical Society marker reads, in part, Five men died during construction. An unidentified worker is believed to be buried in the column behind this marker. The bridge was completed in September of 1924 and was hailed as, quote, a stupendous piece of engineering work. It had been made with 28,000 yards of concrete, 900,000 pounds of steel, and, quite literally, blood, sweat, and tears. A big thank you, by the way, to Ohio Mysteries listener Aaron for calling our attention to this great piece of history. You know, a majority of our topics come from listeners, so don't hesitate to share your ideas with an email to feedback at ohiomysteries.com. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours, head on over to killerpodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.